Welcome to Planet Nude Podcast, a podcast exploring nudity in history, culture, activism, and art. I'm your artificial host, Ryan. Let's dive in. Editor's Note From its emergence in urban industrial hubs to its expansion to affluent coastal destinations, and the vast expanse in between, U.S. nudism has consistently sustained a rich tapestry of regional nuances. This written history, the first of its kind to our knowledge, explores the underappreciated realm of Tennessee nudism, and uncovers the pioneering figures and significant groups that have decisively influenced the national nudism narrative, shedding new light on an often overlooked aspect of American social history. We hope you enjoy. They were made of stern stuff, fired with determination. A History of Nudism in Tennessee Part 1, The Beginning. By Camp. The history of organized nudism and naturism in Tennessee began much earlier than one might imagine. Nudists familiar with the state can likely identify Tennessee's trio of lodges, Timberline Lodge, 1964-2003, Rock Haven Lodge, 1969-present, and Cherokee Lodge, 1993-2014. But several nudist groups, some with unimproved camping areas, were operating in the state long before Timberline opened. In this essay, we'll examine the earliest documented nudist group in the state, established in 1937, and conclude with the first concerted effort to open a full-fledged nudist park in 1957. Solar Health Club While informal skinny dipping and nude sunbathing occurred in Tennessee long before organized nudism took root in America, Solar Health Club appears to have been the first group in the state to seek and receive official recognition from the American Sunbathing Association. In the June 1937 issue of The Nudist, club organizers described their plan to operate a campground on an idyllic property west of Nashville. We are planning to purchase a beautiful site consisting of 11.4 acres including house and barn and various outhouses, located west of Nashville, with private road running about one mile off the highway. There are several wonderful free stone clear springs, with good strong water pressure that will be ample to supply our swimming pool. This can be easily made by widening the creek running from springs through the forests. A fruit orchard and plenty of blackberry bushes promise us native fruits. It is impossible to even see the house or grounds from the private entrance gate. It is entirely secluded from view and the nearest neighbor house is over a mile from our property lines in either direction. We have splendid space already for our tennis, volleyball and badminton courts, and a splendid location to build our community clubhouse. This property can be had immediately and we expect to close the deal this week. A portion of the club's letter to prospective members was included in the publication. In it, the club organizers claim to count among their members some very well-known doctors, artists, architects, writers, actors, nurses and professional women who enjoy with us swimming, tennis, badminton, volleyball, and other outdoor sports, including hiking through the forest trails, and the study of nature. The club also stressed its commitment to health and wellness and referenced physical culture publisher Bernard McFadden as an inspiration. Our exercises are systematic and along the lines suggested by Bernard McFadden, while the meals served at our clubhouse will be somewhat vegetarian and especially adapted to bodybuilding and muscle building. The Solar Leaders also stressed a solid commitment to the moral and psychological benefits of nudism, characteristic of the era clubs, 
which were extraordinarily careful to avoid any implication of impropriety to sidestep trouble with area townsfolk and law enforcement. Were you and your family to visit a camp, you would at first hesitate, perhaps, in appearing naked among others of both sexes though you would soon notice more refinement and a much greater and stronger morale among them than exists even on our own city streets and in a great many homes. You would not once hear a suggestive remark, nor witness so much as a curious glance, except perhaps in admiration of a beautiful body. We feel it is high time our growing children are brought up to know and understand their opposite in sex, to think of the body as wonderful and beautiful. They will then naturally have clean and pure minds, and the more they know about each other from a physical standpoint, the less curiosity and immorality and disease will exist, and the next generation will be of the highest character and morals. The director of Solar Health Club was identified as George Seabee, likely the pen name of a naval officer, as the word Seabee is used to identify members of the Navy Construction Battalion, or CB. George claimed that the Solar Health Club recently welcomed 10 new married couples and would be selling portable canvas housing on its property, entirely storm and windproof, screen completely and ventilated, ready for you to equip as you please as your own camp for $150 and a $10 annual membership fee. George also suggested the group would involve itself with other regional nudist camps, including Indiana's Zorro Nature Park. We are trying to arrange to spend the convention weekend at Zorro Nature Park with Alloy's Knapp and wife and hope to see and meet you there in August. The February 1938 issue of The Nudist offered this description of a curious feature of the solar grounds. At one place there is hewn onto the top of a solid rock a curiously shaped bowl, obviously the handiwork of man with many strange markings. What is it and who made it? Perhaps some Indian tribe used it to grind corn in. Or shall we permit ourselves to give this silent memorial a more fantastic and yet possible interpretation? Could this stone have been an altar upon which sacrifices were offered? It's unclear if the Solar Health Club survived for more than a year or two, but a second group of Tennesseans expressing interest in becoming an affiliate of the American Sunbathing Association appeared in the November 1941 issue of Sunshine and Health. In a discussion of newly organized groups, there was a listing for group number 69 in Nashville. It seems that this group never quite came to fruition, as it disappeared from subsequent editions of the magazine. But in the May 1945 Sunshine and Health, another Nashville group seeking ASA affiliation appeared, group number 234. The following month it was joined by Memphis number 242. By September 1948, there was another Nashville group, number 310, along with Union City number 311 and group number 392, which included organizers from the rural counties of Cheatham, Robertson, Montgomery, and Dixon, all west of Nashville. Many of these groups likely had the same members as some of the earlier efforts, but it wasn't until 1950 that a couple of these clubs earned ASA recognition and took on names. The Ten Tan Club the first of two named Tennessee nudist groups appeared in the June 1950 issue of the Eastern Sunbather newsletter, Nashville's Ten Tan Club. The Ten Tan Club emerged from group number 310, first identified in 1948. A report from the club's leader appeared in the November 1950 Sunshine and Health, signed by Camp Secretary George. It's possible that this George was George Seabee from the Solar Health Club. 
the Ten Tan Club had access to a camping area with multiple clear springs feeding a swimming pool, similar to what CB described on the Solar Health Club property. Just a few lines to let our friends know that the Ten Tans are going strong. Our group has been in existence three years, for the first two years we had only a few couples who were readers of sunshine and health and who were interested in that natural way of life. Until this year we had no adequate camp facilities. We met for sunning on a wooded hilltop on the farm of one of our members. This year it is different, we have a beautiful campsite in the hills of Tennessee, a large swimming pool fed by the water of two cold, clear springs, a cabin and an outdoor grill, all deep in a beautiful valley surrounded by wooded hills. Our membership is now 12 couples, most of whom have children. Every weekend we have a grand time swimming, sunning, hiking and cooking fish, hamburgers, steaks or what have you. Now that we feel we have a permanent and enthusiastic membership it has been unanimously decided to affiliate with the American Sunbathing Association so we may all participate in a way of living which we have found so wonderful. The Tennessee Sunshiners in June 1950, another group appeared in Sunshine and Health that would eventually help nudists establish a more permanent footprint in Tennessee, the Tennessee Sunshiners, based in Sparta, east of Nashville. A seemingly frustrated group leader identified as Bob submitted this report to Sunshine and Health, published in November 1950. To start off, I want to ask everyone to read the explanations and rules for contacting a new group listed in new groups forming. Very few have done this, I am sure. In the first place, we are not yet an established group, we are still just trying to get together. Although we have a small camp, and have about 20 members, they are not all active, and our little camp is not open to the public for transient visitors. We received inquiries from California to Massachusetts and from Florida to Michigan. It is certain that a public camp would be a huge success here in Tennessee, but none of us have the money to build such a thing at the present. Another thing that makes me very unhappy are the dozen or so postcards, which violate the instructions issued by the magazine, and also shows so little sincere interest that I don't know why folks waste the penny. Bob also stressed the club's commitment to working with local authorities to establish a degree of community recognition, acceptance, and legitimacy. The post office is aware of our activities, Bob wrote, as are the authorities. In fact the prosecutors and sheriff's offices have received directions as to how to reach us, an invitation to visit at any time. We have nothing to hide in our moral and healthy way of living, we have no fear of a surprise raid. Bob's report also hinted at a working relationship with other clubs in the area. Some of us visited the 10 Tan Camp at Nashville last Sunday and had a wonderful time. They do have a wonderful camp and the fried chicken was grand. Several of us are visiting Sunny Rest in Pennsylvania, where we also hold active membership next week, then on down to Lake Como and Sunny Palms in Florida. Another report from the Tennessee Sunshiners appeared in the February 1953 Sunshine and Health. The author, identified as Bill, wrote, We had a very quiet summer and fall. The terrific heat all summer made our heavily wooded home grounds too hot for much activity. The long and disastrous drought lowered the level of the lake until it was too warm for swimming. Since we had to close our home camp to club activities to any extent due to its small acreage no longer accommodating the group, we have had only a few new members and old friends stopping by. We are all more or less marking time until the purchase of larger grounds permits group activities again. 
We have an option on a wonderful 115 acres and have established a trust fund from donations of the members to make the required down payment. Sunday a group of us spent most of the day hiking around the place, planning what we would do as soon as we get possession. One of the Tennessee Sunshiner's more interesting activities was beekeeping. We took some more pictures for our future picture story showing beekeeping in the nude and should have several good ones. So far no one has been stung, and we have had a lot of fun making the pictures. Incidentally, we finally overcame the objections from our county agent recently to visiting a nudist home, and he came over to give us some needed help with our apiary plans. Another interested person was one of our state bee inspectors who, after inspecting our little fellows, asked many questions and took the latest issue of Sunshine and Health with him. As alluded to in the 1953 update, the Tennessee Sunshiners received prominent coverage in the January 1954 issue of Sunshine and Health, with significant attention given to the group's beekeeping activities in an article titled BZZZ. A professional punster would be incapable of resisting the urge to describe the Tennessee Sunshiners as literally buzzing with activity, and here are the pictures to prove it. People are forever asking, what do people do at a nudist camp, seemingly unable to realize that nudists who live in camps the year-round do the same things anyone who lives in the country may do. Beekeeping is light, pleasant work, and on a large enough scale, can be very profitable. In sharp contrast to today's leisure-focused nudist resorts, clubs of the 1950s involved a tremendous investment of time and labor from the members. These were working communities. Members dug the swimming areas, built the facilities, and installed whatever utilities the camps had, though most of these early spaces were quite rustic, with only the most rudimentary amenities. The Sunshine and Health columnist observed, It's not only the bees that buzz around the Tennessee Sunshiners, but the two-man saw gets a frequent workout. It's a handy little gadget to have around the house for cutting firewood for cozy long winter evenings in front of the fireplace. There would serve them a triple benefit. It builds muscle tone and heats them twice, once when they cut it and again when they burn it. That's true economy in the field of heating. This summer Bill and Joe will entertain guests of the Tennessee Sunshiners. Why not plan now to buzz down to Tennessee for a vacation? The October 1954 issue of Modern Sunbathing featured a story on the Sunshiners, mostly a how-to guide for beekeeping nudists. It's worth noting that organizer Bill, also a photographer, had many photographs published in the various nudist magazines of the era, with many taken at prominent clubs, including Alloy's Naps Zorro Nature Park, the Cherokee Chums and the Chattatans. As early as October 1950, the Tennessee Sunshiners was listed as the central contact for two other groups, Cherokee Chums in Knoxville and Chattatans in Chattanooga. Little is known of the Cherokee Chums and the Chattatans, though the latter offered an update to the readers of Sunshine and Health in November 1950. Our first news is a little skimpy and uncertain. Our first steps in starting the new group are the same. Although we who are now in the group are new, there used to be a swell group here, we hope to bring them together again. We have no campus yet, but that did not keep some of us from getting out in the sun last weekend. 
It was a glorious experience for the youngsters and the two new couples who were enjoying the sun in total exposure for the first time. The consolidation of the East Tennessee groups and talk of a 115-acre land purchase in 1953 was significant, for the growing organization in the eastern part of the state would eventually lead to the formation of the first landed nudist campground with full facilities, initially organized on a property north of Knoxville in 1964. Height & Sun Club in another boost to the emerging nudist community in East Tennessee, members of the Tennessee Sunshiners in Sparta, the Cherokee Chums in Knoxville, and Chattatans in Chattanooga were joined by Oak Ridge's High Ten Sun Club in 1953. High Ten Sun Club was partly organized by scientists from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, whose work on the Manhattan Project enriched uranium for use in the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, at the end of World War II. In the March 1953 Sunshine and Health, a couple identified as Ken and Sue introduced the club. We have finally arrived. Imagine our joy when we opened an official-looking envelope the other day addressed to Ken and Sue and were greeted with, your group will be listed as High Ten Sun Club and the next issue of Sunshine and Health. The emotion of starting your first group ranks second only to the sensation caused by the first caress of clean spring air after leaving a winter cocoon of stuffy clothes. This is the first experience in nudism but we like firsts, the first complete release from the shackles of raiments, the first member to be interviewed, an interesting chap, the first prospective campsite we looked at, our imagination ran riot. We still build a camp in our dreams from every potential campsite that we see. There are several almost ideal for our needs within 30 miles of Oak Ridge, and we have high hopes that we will have made a down payment on one of those by the time this is published. The 498 Hollow In the May 1957 issue of Solar Universelle de Nudism, there was a listing for the 498 Hollow in Knoxville. The club was mentioned in several publications during 1957 and 1958, but little information was provided. The club appeared to be an offshoot of the 498 Ranch in Bainbridge, Ohio, as it and the 498 Plantation in Gainesville, Florida, included the Ohio address as a contact. In the February 1961 issue of the Bulletin, Ohio organizers Jay and Marge reported, After two years of limited operation, we are opening again with a new park in the woods. We are open to over 600 former members plus touring members from other clubs who hold ASA or NNC cards. The 498 Hollow continued the Tennessee nudist community's coalescence around Knoxville. Wildwood Lodge Although the first Tennessee landed nudist park would be constructed in the state's eastern region, a group from Memphis was the first to open a nudist facility, just across the border in Arkansas. A thorough overview of the beginnings of Wildwood Lodge was provided in the February 1957 issue of Sunshine and Health. Back in 1954, Jim and Betty of Memphis, who were ardent nudists, started organizing a club. Along about this time, Cecil and Wilma, also from Memphis, started making contacts to form a club. Neither couple knew about the other until over a year later. Jim was in the Air Force and transferred to Texas to complete his service, but undaunted by this setback, he continued to plan and work for a club in the Memphis area. During this time, Cecil and Wilma continued making contacts. Jim was discharged in July 1955 and returned to Memphis where he met Cecil and they began to combine their efforts. 
By August 1955, Jim and Cecil had contacted several nudist families in the area. Some were members of clubs in nearby states. With these as a nucleus, a site for a park was located a few miles west of Memphis and work was started on the grounds. In September, because of a change in ownership of the land, this site had to be abandoned. Naturally, this was a great blow and disappointment to the group, but they were made of stern stuff, fired with determination, and did not let a matter as trivial as this floor them. On October 15, 1955, Cecil met with Gordon and his wife Beulah, who identified another site for a nudist park, the remnants of a 66-acre cotton farm just over the state line in Arkansas. Gordon purchased the property, and work began in March 1956. The overgrown grounds were cleared, electricity was added, a well was dug, and the founders erected a handful of trailers and tents. A 24 by 36 foot concrete block clubhouse was built, including a kitchen, a recreation and dining hall with a fireplace, bunk beds, and a bathroom. Private lots for cabins were cleared, with water and electricity added. Trees were planted, a fence was built for privacy, and telephone lines were hung. A total of 30 adults and their 15 children became the inaugural members of Wildwood Lodge. If our present rate of membership growth continues, Gordon wrote in the 1957 Sunshine and Health Report, our membership will be doubled before next summer. We are a happy group and invite all who would like to join or visit us to write today. Plan now for the summer months ahead. Come play, relax and rest in the friendly, congenial atmosphere of Wildwood Lodge. Hope we hear from you. Although the Sunshine and Health Report offered an optimistic vision for the future of Wildwood Lodge, a troubling situation was developing that was not included in the magazine's story. In late 1956, reports about the proposed park began to appear in several local newspapers, inspiring the Caldwell, Arkansas sheriff to begin an investigation. Edith Church of the National Nudist Council, who had experience advocating for nudist clubs in the Bible Belt, flew to Arkansas to meet with the sheriff, hoping that by educating him about the realities of nudism, she could help protect the fledgling club. Church provided an account of the situation in the March 1958 issue of Sunshine and Health. She recalled that on November 28, 1956, Gordon and Church met with Sheriff Campbell of St. Francis County, Arkansas, to discuss Wildwood. In a move that would forever change nudism in Arkansas, Church handed Sheriff Campbell a copy of Sunshine and Health, along with the Wildwood Constitution and bylaws. Church wrote, Mr. Campbell and the others were most cordial, and when we urged the sheriff to come out and visit the camp to assure himself that the conduct there was above reproach, he said he had been planning to visit but just hadn't gotten around to it and assured us he had no intention of causing us any trouble. We were jubilant as we drove back to Wildwood Lodge, confident that all was secure, confident that Sheriff Campbell was a man of his word. As for what happened within the next two months, your guess is as good as ours. On January 29, 1957, Gordon was arrested on charges of indecent exposure and of possessing and distributing obscene literature, the copy of Sunshine and Health provided by Church. Gordon's case was heard on October 24, 1957. The indecent exposure charge was dismissed due to a lack of evidence, but the obscene literature charge remained, for which Gordon was forced to pay a little over $100 in court fines. Ironically, a few months later, on January 13, 1958, 
the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that nudist magazines, even those with full frontal nudity, had the right to be mailed through the U.S. Post Office. Gordon might have walked away without trouble had the case been tried just a few weeks later. But Arkansas legislators, spooked by the Wildwood case and the absence of laws prohibiting nudist activities in Arkansas, were determined to act to ensure nudist camps could never take hold in their state, and they quickly passed an update to AR Code Section 5-68-204 in 1957. In part, the law stated, It is unlawful for any, one, person, club, camp, corporation, partnership, association, or organization to advocate, demonstrate, or promote nudism, or, two, person to rent, lease, or otherwise permit his or her land, premises, or buildings to be used for the purpose of advocating, demonstrating, or promoting nudism. d, any person, club, camp, corporation, partnership, association, or organization violating any provision of this section is guilty of a Class A misdemeanor for each offense. In the January 1958 Bulletin, Gordon struck a hopeful tone about the future of Wildwood Lodge and nudists in Memphis and Arkansas. Until the Arkansas anti-nudist laws are disposed of in some manner and nudism made safe here we cannot count this as a victory and we have a fight ahead yet. All members of Wildwood Lodge feel that they can count on the support of all ASA members to achieve this victory and are optimistic about the future. 66 years later, the Arkansas prohibition on nudism stands inspired by the actions of a handful of Tennesseans who wanted to build a space for people to play, relax, and rest in the friendly, congenial atmosphere of a private, clothes-free camp. But Wildwood Lodge wouldn't be the last nudist camp built by Tennesseans, nor would a Tennessean-owned nudist camp be the last to affect state and national laws regarding nudism. A movement takes shape. Beginning in 1937 and continuing through the 1940s and 1950s, a handful of trailblazing individuals brought the nudist movement to Tennessee. Armed with resources and information from the American Sunbathing Association, the National Nudist Council, and existing nudist camps, they began the slow and complicated process of locating and networking with other prospective nudists in the state. Some established informal gathering spaces at existing homesteads, on farms, or in secluded rural areas. A few pooled their funds and purchased properties to build an actual nudist campground. Groups came and went, and interest waxed and waned, but in time, with the hard work of these committed individuals, a movement began to coalesce, membership grew, leaders were selected, funds were raised, and property was secured. In time, facilities were constructed, and a thriving nudist community began to emerge. Organizers faced many false starts and several legal and financial roadblocks, but through their determination, a 140-acre resort would eventually rise near the grounds of an 1800s-era fruit ranch whose members, according to local legend, danced naked in the apple orchards each morning as part of a ritual to inspire more abundant harvests. In the next installment, we'll explore the origins of Tennessee's two nudist parks in Part 2. All those Tennessee people will be heroes. All those Tennessee people will be heroes. A History of Nudism in Tennessee Part 2, The Nudist Parks From 1937 through 1963, Tennessee nudists organized several groups and informal clubs throughout the state, particularly in the eastern region. 
Although a few found secluded parcels of property on which to gather, the promise of a true nudist park with facilities wasn't realized until 1964, when members of ASA Club No. 385 secured a 100-acre plot of land in a remote area outside of Knoxville, which they named Timberline. But the state's first nudist park faced strong opposition from the local community and required the tireless work and determination of its founding members, a national organization, a historic Maryland nudist club, and twin brothers from New York, culminating in a federal court case that made newspaper headlines across the country and forever changed the legal landscape for nudist clubs in the United States. Deadwood at Timberline proclaimed a headline in the October-November 1964 issue of the Midwestern Sunbathing Association's newsletter MSA News. In the Knoxville, Tennessee area within the next several weeks, will be the MSA's newest chartered club. The final paperwork is now in the mill, and it is hoped that a final report on the board action can be printed in the next issue of the MSA News. Their latest newsletter tells of their incorporation as a non-profit organization and the harassment of the five signers of the corporation papers. It is always amazing how the news media jump on such a story as this, and make a big issue out of it. With all the necessary groundwork out of the way, constitution, dues and fees, community acceptance, elections, etc., Timberliners are now starting to work on improving their club grounds. Present plans are to have their lodge built, running water, flush toilets, gravel road into the grounds, and improved parking and recreational facilities all by next spring. This may sound like wishful thinking, but with the drive this new group has, it is highly possible that with the green of spring will be seen a completed work list. The October 1964 issue of the Bulletin included the first mention of Timberline and its founding organizers in a report on the August ASA convention at Pennsylvan. With all the whoop-dee-doo and excitement going on at the ASA convention it was impossible for one pair of eyes and ears to keep track of everything. In sports there were sometimes as many as three events going on at the same time, and, while your reporter watched one and listened to another, he could only guess at what was happening to the third. In the list of trophy winners from such familiar clubs as Empire Haven, Pine Tree, and Sunny Rest were Adam and Bunny of Timberline. The report noted that Adam won men's swimming and table tennis trophies, while Bunny won the women's archery competition. Though not identified as such, Adam and Bunny were founding members and leaders of the new Tennessee club. A newcomer to club notes is the Timberline Club of Tennessee, announced an update in the December 1964 Bulletin. They report that they have recently incorporated as a non-profit organization and have received a charter under the laws of the state of Tennessee. They received considerable publicity and a large number of inquiries from people interested in nudism. The update acknowledged that members remain concerned about the community's response to a nudist club in the area, particularly the press coverage, but that they are expected to receive their ASA charter in the coming weeks. A good deal of information regarding the early behind-the-scenes happenings with the Timberline Club can be found in a series of letters between John and Henry Roberts, New York residents who applied to become Timberline's managers and Adam and Bunny, the leaders of the fledgling Knoxville Club. The Roberts brothers, Columbia graduates, bookstore employees, and identical twins, had spotted an ad seeking a caretaker for Timberline in the January 1965 bulletin and quickly responded. The Roberts introduced themselves in a January 4, 1965 letter. My brother John and I saw your ad in the January bulletin and are interested in becoming the managers of Timberline. We are both 35, 
being twins, and have been nudists since 1954, joining at Sunny Rest Lodge, Pennsylvania and continuing membership there for five years when we switched to Camp Goodland membership to cut traveling time for New York City in half. Zelda Supli of Sunny Rest and Paula Kramer of Goodland are our long-standing good friends. A February 15, 1965 response from Timberline Chairman Adam, who, like the twins, was just 35 at the time, offered more information on the club's founding members. Timberline is an affiliate of the Tennessee Outdoor Club, incorporated under the laws of the state of Tennessee in August of 1964. Our ASA charter received the final stamp of approval in January of this year. We have a six-member board of directors which covers the business of the club. You might be interested in some background information on each of the board members, an independent businessman who is owner and lesser of the club property, seven years in the movement, a wife of an independent machinist who recently set up his own company, six years, a wife of an insurance executive, 1.5 years, an instructor in the University of Tennessee, 15 years, a local business executive, born and raised in Knoxville, two years, a retired U.S. Army colonel and West Point graduate, 15 years. One interesting revelation in this letter was the identification of a boarding home near the University of Tennessee, managed by the Timberline Chairman Adam and rented out to an ever-growing group of local nudists. You expressed an interest in Gemeinschaft House which delighted my wife Bunny and I particularly. I happen to be the resident agent for the owners of a rooming house situated two blocks from the University of Tennessee. Over a period of two years, we have been unusually selective, and fortunate, about whom we have allowed to rent apartments. By this I mean we have finally put together a house full of nudists who, by the way, are connected with the University of Tennessee in some capacity or other. The occupants consist of three families and a single girl. You will be welcome to stay here unless previous commitments to other out-of-town members should take up all available space. No finer camaraderie could exist. Gemeinschaft is a German sociological term which is used to characterize a form of social relations consisting of close, personal, face-to-face -face communication. But trouble was brewing as the Roberts brothers prepared to relocate to Tennessee. In the summer of 1964, State Representative Gaines Morton was flying his helicopter near the Timberline property north of Knoxville when he spotted several nude people frolicking below. Morton would later claim that someone in the area fired a gun at his helicopter, though the nudists denied responsibility. In the early months of 1965, with the support of Knoxville law enforcement, Morton pushed through a statute, 39-3009, that effectively banned nudism in Tennessee. Its critical provisions stated, It shall be unlawful for any person, firm or corporation to operate or carry on or engage in the operation of a nudist colony in this state. It shall also be unlawful for any person to engage in nudist practices in this state. It shall be a misdemeanor for anyone to violate the provisions of this section, and punishable as such. The ASA was quickly engaged, and three influential members of Maryland's Pine Tree Associates began to work with the Timberline Group on a plan to confront the law. As reported in the March 27, 1965, Knoxville New Sentinel, the secretary of the first chartered, 1934, nudist club of the American Sunbathing Association, Pine Tree Lodge in Maryland, traveled to Knoxville this week for the purpose of inquiring into the status of the Knoxville Nudist Club following the recent anti-nudist legislation. Mr. Sam Richards, who is also the editor of the Pine Tree Cone, a nudist newsletter published by his club, stated he first informed the ASA attorneys, 
Dennison and Dennison of Washington, and Mrs. Rose Holroyd, the ASA executive director, of his intended trip, and that he would gather data pertinent to the proper method of testing the constitutionality of the law. Richards was quoted as saying, I was utterly appalled at the little interest which Tennesseans, in general, demonstrate in the face of erosion of their freedoms. The issue involved here, goes far deeper than the conception of prohibiting a few cranks from running naked through the woods. Timberline Chairman Adam provided another report on the involvement of the Pine Tree representatives in a March 28, 1965 letter to prospective managers John and Henry Roberts. Lee, aka Sam Richards, of Pine Tree Lodge came down, talked with us, gathered info, and left for home after assuring us of his intention to publish our situation throughout the movement via his club's newsletter, of which he is editor. The newsletter is sent to every club in the country. Plus he'll inform Jerry, chairman of ASA Legislative Committee, who is a member of Pine Tree, and also Paul, public relations chairman of ASA, who is also a member of Pine Tree. In his newsletter he'll push for financial support for us. Lee just called from Washington DC and told Peggy that Jerry says that the ASA hopes that this case goes all the way to the US Supreme Court so that the legality of nudism in all 50 states will, once and for all, be established. The ASA will financially back the case all the way. Jerry said, all those Tennessee people will be heroes. Back in Maryland, Lee wrote about the seriousness of the situation in the March 31, 1965, Pine Tree Whispers newsletter. I learned that there is a movement afoot to bring social and economic pressures to bear on the members if and when they return to their grounds. We all know what this means, nothing new here, it has all happened before. Knoxville already has several martyrs. The signers of the charter are being hunted, people have lost their jobs, there is much more, but due to the fact that copies of this issue, minus heading and signature, are going to the newspapers and the sheriff mentioned, we must write carefully. In November 1965, Timberline, acting as the Tennessee Outdoor Club, joined with the American Sunbathing Association to ask the U.S. District Court in Tennessee to invalidate the law. The case attracted national news coverage, including a piece in the November 12th, 1965 issue of Time, under the headline Naked Discrimination. In Tennessee, which has had little racial trouble, the most ambitious civil rights case in years got underway last week. The plaintiffs, for a change, were not Negroes. They were nudists. At issue before a three-judge federal court in Knoxville was a suit by the Tennessee Outdoor Club, which last year received a state charter to found a nudist colony. In the Charter's words, the co-educational camp was for the sole purpose of social, sun, air and water therapy, without the confinement of clothing. But before the project could take off, local residents persuaded the Tennessee legislature to pass a law making nudism a misdemeanor. John and Henry Roberts, having a claim of lost employment due to the statute, the Tennessee Outdoor Club, and the American Sunbathing Association acted as plaintiffs in the case, which was decided on January 12, 1966. The decision was written by Senior District Judge Leslie Rogers Dar of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee. It is quite clear that nudists have the constitutional freedom to engage in association for the advancement of beliefs and ideas. Attached to this freedom of association is also the freedom of action, which utilizes the beliefs and ideas for the assemblies. If such action is compatible with the freedom of others, there is nothing in the proof whatever to indicate that nudism is other than an idiosyncratic, though innocuous, 
practice which engenders no harm or danger either to its members or society in general. In view of the fact that it lies uncontroverted in the record that the aim of nudists and nudist colonies is simply to indulge in amicable association with the purpose in view to promote physical and mental health, I can come to no other conclusion but that nudists have a constitutional right to practice their beliefs in the manner heretofore indicated. It is my thought that the Tennessee nudism statute prohibits the practice of nudism in clear and understandable language. However, I conclude that the freedom of association and the right of privacy are each constitutional rights, which, for the purposes of this investigation, are absorbed by the 14th Amendment. Applying these principles to the validity of the Tennessee Public Act, Chapter 176, Section 39 to 3009 TCA, results in the conclusion that this legislation is unconstitutional as violating substantive due process. While I believe that what has been said is sufficient to establish that this state statute is unconstitutional, I am inclined to think that this statute works a discrimination against nudist colonies and their members under the equal protection of the laws, provision of the 14th Amendment. Judge Dar added this amusing addendum. Lest I be heralded as the patron saint of nudism, let me add this hasty remark. The wiles and lures of that most peculiar cult completely elude me. It seems in fact something of a mystery why those who engage in its strange practices are willing to suffer both the stings of outraged public opinion and voracious, ravenous insects in order to pursue its illusory rewards. To my personal way of thinking the theories of nudism are not only foolish, but downright distasteful and indelicate. But as such theories play no legitimate part in a judicial opinion, I shall call all personal remarks short simply stating that in our triune form of government, it is the particular duty of the judiciary to protect individuals and minorities in their constitutional rights even though their beliefs and activities may be heretical or unpopular. By invalidating the Tennessee prohibition on nudist parks, a federal court, for the first time, established a precedent for the constitutional right of private nudist clubs to exist throughout the country. Hip hip hooray for Timberline and victory, the Roberts brothers proclaimed in a January 30, 1966 letter to Adam. As a result of the delays caused by the court case, John and Henry were unable to take on the caretaker positions at Timberline. Still, they played a critical role in the legal challenge to Tennessee's hastily passed 1965 law outlawing nudist camps. In letters to Adam, the twins expressed their willingness to be arrested to force the courts to confront the law. Instead, they served as plaintiffs in the precedent-setting federal case. In 1966, the brothers parted ways with Timberline to take over operations at Sunshine Park in Mays Landing, New Jersey, the club that had once served as ASA headquarters. They later relocated to Cypress Cove. In a disturbing turn of events, on Monday, March 20th, 1986, the Orlando Sentinel reported that the twins were found dead in a blood-soaked motel room in Kissimmee, the apparent victims of a carefully planned double suicide. By the end of 1966, lingering hostilities in Knox County and threats of local legislation aimed at disbanding the club inspired the Timberline organizers to relocate the club to rural Crossville, 70 miles west of Knoxville, on the Cumberland Plateau. Timberlines moved to Crossville. 
In the late 1800s, a group from Indiana purchased land in Crossville. It established the Pomona Settlement to tend to the apple orchards of the former Pomona Fruit Ranch, which had been owned by John Wood Dodge, a respected artist whose paintings can be found in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Pomona Settlement drew the attention of Crossville and Monterey residents when it was rumored that the group's women danced nude in the orchards each morning to encourage more abundant apple harvests. For many years, paintings of the naked dancing women were sold in area tourist shops. It seemed fitting that Tennessee's first dedicated nudist resort would be located nearby, leasing land off Highway 70, near Old Pomona Road. The club was generally well received by locals, though operating as a seasonal co-op in a remote, wooded area was not without challenges. With many Timberline organizers continuing to live in Knoxville and Nashville, the club remained unattended in the winter months and occasionally suffered vandalism by locals. In the February-March 1974 issue of the Bulletin, Timberline's co-manager Fran described one such incident, where she arrived at the camp to discover the signage had been destroyed, and her office had been broken into and ransacked. I decided that it was time to call the sheriff, and upon reaching for the phone discovered that the receiver had been torn from it and was nowhere to be found. Luckily, I was able to activate the extension in my trailer and notify the authorities. Timberline is now sporting a new metal-type gate and the welcome sign will soon be remounted on metal posts. Despite such challenges, the summer of 74 marked Timberline's 10th anniversary, and a celebratory luau was held on July 20th. The August-September 1974 issue of the Bulletin noted that of the original 27 charter members, only one remained. Still, several made the journey to celebrate Timberline's anniversary, including its first president from Knoxville, Adam, who visited with his daughter. Manager Bob, also PR chair of the ASA, reported in the June 1976 issue of the Bulletin that caretakers' quarters were being added. The December 1977 issue of the publication suggested that year-round activities were beginning to take place. Timberline finished a wonderfully full season with a Halloween party October 22nd. We gathered in the clubhouse kept toasty warm by our newly installed Franklin stove. As the ghouls and goblins came in from the dark, we set out lots of goodies. Everyone enjoyed cream cheese dip, fried chicken and cheese straws topped off with plum cake and hot mold cider. Imagine, if you can, a room full of people doing 13 goofy activities, jumping on one foot, making faces, shouting, Timberline, in a different order simultaneously. This was no mere mixer. This was pandemonium. Timberline's rapid growth was described in the January-February 1978 issue of Natural Life. Timberline is only a seasonal club, operating from May through September. The primary reason for this is the fact that it is a small co-op situation with no resident owner or manager. The writer observed that the Cumberland Plateau's snowy winters made the club hardly the time or place to dash about in the buff. The more pressing issue continued to be that the leaders of the club resided in various distant locations across Tennessee. The club's manager lived in Nashville, which was a fur piece from the grounds. Though the lack of an on-site staff remained a problem, Timberline was making great progress in becoming a full-service resort. A 30-by-40 clubhouse with a community kitchen and two A-frame cottages had been constructed, and a lake had been dug. In addition to the new amenities, Timberline began a greater effort to add to its 108 members through events and festivals. 
The July 1979 Bulletin described preparations for Timberline to host Dixie Days, an annual festival that rotated between several southern nudist parks, one that included volleyball and horseshoes tournaments, a royalty contest, and a watermelon seed spitting contest. In 1987, Timberline was purchased by Glenn and B, who worked hard to transform the park from a rustic co-op to a full-service, year-round resort. The clubhouse added a plaque announcing, there are no strangers at Timberline Lodge, only friends you haven't met. Thanks to the availability of undeveloped acreage around the park, Timberline doubled its size to 142 acres by the end of 1987. In 1988, Timberline began hosting non-landed club weekends to welcome clubs without their own physical spaces. In August 1992, the bulletin included an announcement for the Tennessee Pickin' and Jammin' Festival. Glenn, owner of Timberline Lodge, is no stranger to the world of music. Having received the Young Composer's Award and having performed his original composition with the Knoxville Symphony when he was 11 years old, he went on to teach public school music for 16 years. Glenn was particularly proud of Timberline's music-themed events and its illuminated disco dance floor, the only one of its kind in any nudist club in the country. Timberline boasts new bed and breakfast in proclaimed a headline in the September 1991 Bulletin, ushering in a new era for Timberline by opening an impressive new two-story lodge dubbed the Treetop Inn. The inn included 12 guest rooms on two floors, overlooking the sizable in-ground pool. Timberline added an adjacent 30-acre farm to its property the following March, with a farmhouse available to rent to large groups. Timberline's growth during the early 1990s was similar to what was happening with nudist parks around the country. Unlike in the early days of rustic campgrounds, nudists were less inclined to join a co-op club that required them to spend their weekends doing chores and making improvements to the properties. The bulletin was moving away from promoting clubs as working communities, instead depicting them as vacation destinations or resorts. A description of Timberline in the February 1993 bulletin demonstrated this shift in marketing. The management philosophy at Timberline is simple. Give nudists a first-class facility to get away from it all and not lift a finger if they don't want to. One thing is for sure, no one who visits Timberline will be doing any work. We're not a co-op club, a facility where you work to gain membership, said Owner B. From previous experience, we know people don't want to come here and work, they want to play. By the end of the 1990s, Glenn and B were working harder than ever to open up Timberline to non-nudists to attract prospective new members and maintain good relationships within their community. In June 1995 the resort hosted Tennessee Wildlife Resources officers for an educational workshop on nudism. A report in that month's bulletin quotes an officer as saying, I will certainly have a different attitude about nude recreationists when I encounter them. His colleague added, I hope that every law enforcement official in Tennessee has the opportunity to attend a training session like this. In 1997, Timberline acquired a restored train car and opened a luncheon spot named Hobo's Tea Room, as well as a small railroad museum in a space outside the nude area of the resort. This addition allowed both locals and tourists to meet the resort's owners, staff, and members, and learn more about the nudist idea, in a fully clothed setting. Timberline even built a relationship with the local Mennonite community, which provided cheese and other farm-fresh goods for the restaurant and events. Publicity nearly ended Timberline in the early 1960s, but throughout the 1980s and 1990s, 
Timberline's active self-promotion made it one of the most successful clubs in the Southeast and drew comparisons to Florida's Cypress Cove. The club was featured in radio, newspaper, and television interviews in a highway sign near the park's entrance. A van with Timberline's information on the sides drove around nearby towns and cities. GTE Telecommunications even filmed the commercial on the Timberline grounds. Timberline helped to make Tennessee a travel destination for nudists from across the country. It also inspired two other lodges to open within the state. Rock Haven Lodge The year 1967 would be an important one for nudists in Tennessee. Not only did Timberline establish its permanent location in Crossville, but a new resort began to take shape in Murfreesboro, just south of Nashville. Here, in a very rocky, wooded 25-acre area off Bradyville Pike, was the site founders Bob and Louise selected as the home of ASA Group No. 638, Rock Haven Lodge. The May 1981 bulletin explained that Rock Haven was organized by members of Timberline Lodge. As so often happens, a substantial segment broke away and set up their own park at Rock Haven, and as so often happens, the offspring has more members than the parent. July 1984 Bulletin described its inception. A few friends hiked through the woods, cut trees, selected building sites for the pool and clubhouse, picnicked, and enjoyed friendship for several weekends. Bulldozing a road was a must. Members built a huge bonfire to send smoke signals to the bulldozer operator guiding him to their chosen site. Naturally, a meeting house with restroom facilities and swimming pool were high on the priority list. Two families borrowed money for the construction of the quality steel in-ground pool and somehow it was fenced. Fortunately, Bob, a construction worker by trade, was not stopped by the earth of rock. Dynamite shaped the pit for the septic sewage system as well as the swimming pool. Following the example set by Timberline organizers in Crossville, Bob went to great lengths to build good relationships with the Murfreesboro locals, helping to neutralize any opposition before it had a chance to organize. Bob made a point of hiring neighbors at Rock Haven for his construction crews. Almost every family in several miles radius had worked on the club grounds, had met and become acquainted with members before the weather was suitable for shedding clothes. The neighbors were friends. They adored Bob and Louise and other members. An ASA charter was presented to the Rock Haven owners by ASA President Bob Johnson in 1969, and the club received its first substantial coverage in the April 1970 Bulletin. Brand new ASA Club Rock Haven in Tennessee added its 50th member, appointed a club manager, had a visit from ESA President Paul Arnold and entertained visitors from the Timberline, enchanted Fawn and Tri-State Clubs, all during the month of February. Rock Haven, located at Murfreesboro, 30 miles from Nashville and 70 miles from Chattanooga, already boasts a clubhouse and is looking forward to entertaining ASA members from other clubs going north or south. A grand opening celebration was held on August 15, 1970, which was covered in the September 1970 Bulletin. Saturday, August 15, 1970 is a day that will long be remembered by all who attended the grand opening of Rock Haven, Tennessee's newest and fastest-growing nudist club. Located in the middle of Tennessee, Rock Haven has only been in existence a little more than a year and already is showing signs of becoming a number one club in the South. Bob Johnston of the ASA officiated at the ribbon-cutting ceremony to formally open the beautiful new swimming pool. 
The pool is rectangular in shape and has a standard diving board and a curved aquatic slide. The weather was perfect in volleyball, horseshoes, and swimming were the order of the day. Saturday evening, everyone relaxed while they viewed the new ASA film The Takeoff. Mr. Johnston gave an informal speech before and after the showing of the film giving pertinent information about the film. On April Fool's Day, 1972, Harold and Maxine purchased Rock Haven. Under their leadership, Rock Haven became the first nudist park in the country to be featured in a state-sponsored brochure for camping and was even listed as a family attraction. Ten years later, the ASA General Assembly awarded the Irwin Coke Hospitality Award to Rock Haven. Rock Haven grounds are pictured in this brochure from the late 1970s. Courtesy of the Nudist Research Library Consortium. In 1984, Rock Haven was sold to its third set of owners, a Czech couple named George and Nancy Volek. At the time, the Voleks were negotiating to buy another park, Florida's Sunny Palms, opened and managed by legendary nudists Reed and Zelda Suplee. As the November 2018 Bulletin explained, Reed was in declining health and put Sunny Palms up for sale. The Voleks were interested in purchasing Sunny Palms but did not act quickly enough. Before the Voleks could make their move, Reed's non-nudist wife accepted an offer from DuPont to buy the Sunny Palms property for use as a testing lab for its paints. Though disheartened by the Sunny Palms sale, they soon learned about the availability of Rock Haven Lodge. We were not sure exactly where Murfreesboro, Tennessee was, Nancy told the Bulletin. But the next day we drove there to see Rock Haven. And we bought it that night. The couple quickly went about upgrading Rock Haven's facilities and experimented with many innovative marketing approaches. In 1987, George welcomed guests from the area chambers of commerce, with 400 individuals from over 250 businesses in attendance, along with the mayor and local county officials. According to a report in the August 1987 Bulletin, the highlight of the evening may have been when George Volek, talking to the mayor, was interrupted for a phone call from the governor's office. The governor wanted to attend the meeting, but because of the number of cars on the grounds, there was not enough room for his helicopter to land. Mr. Volek offered to pick him up at the local airport, but he would not have arrived at the meeting in time. As of this writing, 14 couples have returned for visits. Nancy also began an innovative series of presentations to psychology classes at nearby Middle Tennessee State University and at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. This outreach boosted the number of young adult visitors to the park, which led to special student events and discounts. George attracted some controversy in 1994 when the Tennessee General Assembly sought to expand the definition of indecent exposure to include simple nudity. Some accused the Rock Haven owner, also ASA president at the time, of not doing enough to confront the law, as he sought no more than an exemption for the state's private nudist parks. In his 1998 article A Hole in the Flag, originally published on the Naturist Action Committee website, Bob Morton, NAC chairman from 1997 to 2017, described the 1994 law which criminalized nudity on public lands in the state. It delivered a body blow to naturists with legislation that criminalized simple nudity on public lands and placed skinny dipping in the same category as public sodomy and bestiality. A person commits the offense of indecent exposure if that person appears in a state of nudity, Tennessee Code Annotated, Section 39-13-511. 
an exception to that law, negotiated on behalf of landed nudist resorts in the state, narrowly exempts a private facility which has been formed as a family-oriented clothing optional facility, properly licensed by the state. Naturists advocating for discreet nude use of public lands believe they had a serious shot at gaining an exemption to the law. NAC, AANR, ESA, and MSA split the cost of hiring lobbyist Sharon Johnson. Johnson proposed this amendment. Person, violating the law, does not include a naturist, who is an individual exercising a belief in or practicing clothing optional activities without the intent to offend. As Bob Morton observed, state law in Tennessee would recognize social nudists as an entity for the first time in U.S. history, establishing what could have been an important precedent for the rest of the country. But when the final version of the bill was signed into law, it omitted Johnson's suggested amendment and kept the exemption for private nudist parks. One of the more interesting features to be built at Rock Haven, other than its remote control car racetrack, was its railroad, described in the August 2001 bulletin. Rock Haven Railroad was the brainchild of member PT, and it quickly drew widespread support from a dozen other members at a meeting last fall. PT built sections of railroad track from the ton, literally, of rails that were purchased. Member Bambi donated a traditional caboose to the train. For George's birthday in June, his wife Nancy bought him a brand new shiny red locomotive, 65-ton switcher. On Memorial Day weekend, the official Golden Spike ceremony was held with the symbolic last spike of the first section completed. On August 1st, 2005, George and Nancy retired from running Rock Haven, and the park was sold to Phoenix residents Dennis and Susan, who first tried nudism while on vacation in Jamaica in 1993 and had been members of Arizona's Shangri-La from 1996 to 2005. Tragically, Dennis passed away just two years later, leaving Susan to run the park on her own. Susan has been featured in several local and national news stories about Rock Haven, including the October 3rd, 2019 issue of Newsweek, when a brush fire broke out on a nearby farm, and Susan sent the camp's 1964 Ford fire truck to help. A group of residents at a nudist park in Tennessee helped to contain a brush fire on Wednesday which threatened to burn down a trailer and a power pole, according to reports. Susan, one of the residents of the Rock Haven Lodge nudist park, which is located near the intersection, noticed something was wrong after seeing heavy smoke during her drive home. She called 911. I looked out to my left and saw a lot of smoke and I thought, that doesn't look good. I got in touch with some of my guys and said, take the fire truck and go. Soya Lake. Rock Haven led to one short-lived club, Summertown's Soya Lake, which opened in 1984 and was named after a 16th century Native American tribe initially based in the Tennessee River Valley. The club seems to have lasted no more than one season despite an impressive set of amenities described in an opening season newsletter. Now is the time to get your uniform in shape for 84. The newest camp in Tennessee is now officially open. It boasts 40 acres, 12 acres in pines, the rest deciduous trees, two fishing ponds, one lake, a lovely clubhouse, fruit and nut trees, four springs, and a space beside the clubhouse for swimming pool, volleyball, and a jacuzzi. Other short-lived campgrounds emerged in West Tennessee, including the Garden and Utopia, but like Tsoyaha Lake, they lasted for no more than a season or two, and very little is known about them. In 1964, a state representative flying a helicopter over a nudist camp sought to outlaw nudism in Tennessee. 
1987, the Tennessee governor made plans to attend a gathering of area chambers of commerce at a Tennessee nudist camp, but his helicopter was unable to land in the crowded parking lot. That's a lot of progress in just over 20 years. Like many 1960s-era ASA nudist parks, Timberline and Rock Haven were originally organized with restrictive admission policies, and hosted traditional ASA events like pageants and sports competitions. Eventually, their owners followed the ASA's lead in moving away from marketing their clubs as working co-ops to appeal to a broader set of consumers seeking relaxation and recreation. But in the early 1990s, a new philosophy of clothing-optional living was emerging in the United States under the leadership of free beach activist Lee Baxendall and the Naturist Society of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. In 1993, it would inspire a new kind of club to open in the state, just a few miles from Timberline. This new club would be built by a group of Timberline members who were unhappy with the club's direction and shared an ambitious vision of creating a self-contained naturist village. But nudists in the state would soon face a new set of challenges, far more complicated and difficult to overcome than angry politicians and outraged citizens. The good old summertime is almost over. A History of Nudism in Tennessee Part 3, The Naturists Many of the nudist clubs in the United States began by spinning off from established clubs. It's not uncommon for nudists to become dissatisfied with a club for various reasons, such as disagreements with leadership, lack of opportunities for involvement, or simply feeling like they don't fit in. When this happens, some members may start a new club that better aligns with their philosophies. While this can be a challenging process, it can also lead to the creation of a new and vibrant community. In 1992, several members of Crossville's Timberline Lodge decided the time was right to start their own club, one that was more closely aligned with the values and philosophies of free beach activist Lee Baxendall and the Naturist Society. The Birth of Cherokee Lodge Tennessee's Cherokee Lodge and Resort was formed when a handful of members affiliated with Timberline became dissatisfied with the club and decided the time had come to break away and build their own clothing-optional sanctuary. Three couples, Newell, nicknamed Honey because of his habit of calling everyone Honey, and Juanita, Toot Toot, Paul and Diane, and Danny and Rosalie purchased the initial 100-acre property on February 25, 1992 a piece of land that had remained undeveloped since it was last deeded in 1948. Groundbreaking took place in March 1992. The Cumberland Plateau location was ideal, as it was equidistant between the cities of Nashville and Knoxville, less than a mile off of Interstate 40, but well secluded within several hundred acres of pristine forest. The property was named Cherokee Sun Lodge as a nod to founder Danny's Native American heritage and the quaint old sunbathing camps of nudism's early days. As Danny recalled in the May 2007 issue of the Bulletin, the property was utterly rustic, with no existing infrastructure. Nothing came with the property, just woods, and nice creeks. I just walked through and said, this would be a nice place to put this here. We started by pushing the roads in, getting city water, utilities. People started coming, and they brought more people. It's important to note that Cherokee was founded by a group of naturists disillusioned with the existing nudist establishment, which they felt was too exclusionary and bureaucratic. They wanted to get back to basics and focus on creating a space for people to skinny dip and reconnect with nature. 
They tried to move away from the gatekeeping tendencies of nudism's old guard and welcome newcomers, singles, and others that traditional nudist camps tended to shun. One of Tennessee's two existing camps had still refused to sign the TNS member agreement by 1992, citing concerns with the LGBT non-discrimination clause. After reading the agreement that the Naturist Society sends to potential participating clubs, I can see why the Tennessee clubs didn't sign it, proclaimed a reader letter published in the summer 1985 clothed with the sun, but the Cherokee owners were quick to embrace the agreement and join the network, and materials provided to guests in the early years stressed the resort's very forward-thinking admission policy. In the early days of American club nudism, rules of propriety demanded that all visitors be male-female couples. A lot has changed, and today single persons are welcomed much more widely than they once were at nudist clubs and resorts. However, vestiges of that old-fashioned policy linger, and many clubs do have some restrictions on the number of non-member single male visitors they will allow on a given day, ostensibly to provide gender balance and prevent women from feeling outnumbered and uncomfortable. Cherokee Lodge and Resort believes that individuals should be granted or denied access to naturist venues based solely on their behavior, and has set up non-discriminatory admission policies. The owners promoted Cherokee and traditional nudist and naturist publications like Nude and Natural, Naturally, in the Bulletin. They also placed ads in the Knoxville Metropulse and the Nashville Scene, two area alt-weeklies with a large audience of young and progressive readers. These ads sought to demystify the concept of social nudity by simply inviting visitors to come skinny dip with us. A Year of Rapid Growth Within one year, the Cherokee property had electricity, water, and sewer lines, and the first seven structures had been completed, an office, a bathhouse, three duplex cabins, a snack bar, and a pavilion with a hot tub. Members laid the blocks, framed the buildings, and dug the pool. Nude and natural writer Bill Pennington was astonished by this rapid progress, which he described in the December 1993 issue. Already Cherokee Sun Lodge is showing how fast a club with enthusiastic backing can progress. We originally visited in October 92 when Cherokee had just started. Returning exactly one year later, we were absolutely dumbfounded how much the club had progressed. Talk about being born full-grown. Volleyball and tennis courts were also under construction, as was the centerpiece of the resort, the three-story lodge and restaurant. Well on the way to completion is the great clubhouse made of very large log beams. Volleyball and tennis courts were also under construction, as was the centerpiece of the resort, the three-story lodge and restaurant. Well on the way to completion is the great clubhouse made of very large log beams. It will feature a kitchen, a large fireplace, dance floor, game room, library, and surrounding porch on three sides. The clubhouse promises to be a showplace. Great care went into the layout of the park. Most of the original forest was left intact, RVs and mobile homes were kept out of sight of the main recreational areas, and all of the structures were designed to resemble rustic log cabins, complete with porches with rocking chairs and old-fashioned oil lamps. Many of the buildings used antique windows with their characteristic wavy glass panes. There were carved Native American sculptures throughout, and a 20-foot teepee greeted visitors when they drove into the main campground. The facilities were confined to a 25-acre parcel of land near the entrance, leaving the remaining 250 acres of pristine forest largely untouched, aside from the trails and some wooden bridges across the streams and lakes. 
With so much land and adjacent property available for expansion, Cherokee had tremendous potential for growth. Improvements were made nearly every year. Large cabins were added for the managers, and campground maps indicated that additional duplex cabins for guests had been planned in an area next to the original units. Work on more RV spaces was underway, and there would eventually be over 150 RV sites. Nine miles of trails were cut in the forests, and there was talk about building a general store and a bowling alley. The young, rapidly growing Cherokee soon attracted the attention of nudist and naturist leaders, and a trio of naturist society happenings would soon put Cherokee on the map as a regional destination. The Heartland Naturist Happenings Before Cherokee's opening, the region lacked the sort of significant naturist gatherings being held on the east and west coasts and in Florida. Nude in natural writers and self-proclaimed nude nomads Camilla Van Sickle and Bill Pennington saw an opportunity for a regional naturist gathering in the southeast. The word happening alludes to a kind of experimental social protest naturist society founder Lee Baxendahl wrote about earlier in his career as a 1960s playwright and activist. Cherokee was the ideal location for such an event. With the help of the Kenten Naturists Travel Group of McKenzie, Tennessee, the Nomads organized the inaugural Heartland Naturist happening on June 9 to 13, 1994. Attendance fees were just $20, and Cherokee offered half-price tenting, RV, cabin, and grounds fees during the event. There was an artist's workshop, and interested guests were allowed to visit Scott's Gulf Beach for sunning and skinny dipping. The second happening took place June 15 to 19, 1995. Again, Bill Pennington noted the rapid growth of the new resort in the February 1996 nude and natural. Cherokee Sun Lodge has grown by 180 acres, adding new roads, parking lots, and a toilet-slash-shower house next to the pool. A paved public road now leads to the club entrance only seconds away from the interstate. Most recently, a regulation tennis court was added, a second court is planned. At 280 acres, Tennessee's newest club has become the largest and best equipped in the volunteer state. Quality naturism is what it's all about. The second happening included skinny dipping trips to Northrop Falls in the Big South Fork Wilderness Area, and the spacious new hot tub pavilion was christened by 30 attendees who set a new Cherokee stuffing hot tub record. The happening also hosted the area premiere of the TNS video The Spirit of Naturism. Notable attendees included Dr. Leisure, a disability activist, and the founders of the Naturist Tennessee Travel Group. Tennessee had been subjected to sweeping anti-nudity legislation in 1994, criminalizing nudity on public lands and placing new restrictions on family nudism. The happening featured a presentation called Danger for Family Naturism, which stressed organizations like the Naturist Action Committee's important role in protecting naturist rights. The final Heartland Naturist happening took place June 13 to 17, 1996. Van Sickle and Pennington were preparing to retire from their nomadic lifestyle, and Pennington expressed hope that a fourth happening would be held. In the November 1996 Nude and Natural, Pennington wrote, We've opened El Dorado hot mineral pools in Arizona and must devote most of our energies there. However, Bill Miller and Bill Pacer have stepped forward to take charge of the Heartland event, and we're confident they will do a fine job. From the background, they will receive our support. Please, give yours. Unfortunately, a fourth Heartland happening was not to be. 
Shortly after renaming Cherokee Sun Lodge to Cherokee Lodge and Resort, Danny became ill and was forced to close Cherokee from October 1996 through the end of the 1997 season. It was a devastating blow to the young resort. It was reported that the resort would be sold, and many wondered if Cherokee would ever again operate as a naturist facility. A rustic version of Cypress Cove. But by 1998, Danny was in good health, and Cherokee was back in business. The club's first website was launched, and it significantly increased Cherokee's visibility. Membership continued to grow. By summer, Cherokee announced it had been selected to host the 1999 Midwest Naturist Gathering, a step up from the trio of smaller happenings. The gathering was held August 5th to 8th and attended by Nikki Hoffman, Judy Ditzler, and Bob Morton of the Naturist Society. Some of the last representatives of the National Nudist Council set up an ice cream table, and according to a report in the May 2000 Nude in Natural, workshops included NIFIC, Nude in Front of Computer and Producing Effective Naturist Club Newsletters. One seminar included a segment called Southern Naturism for Dummies, a naturist guide on how to enjoy officer encounters in the South, which offered updates on Tennessee's new nudity prohibitions. That same month, Cherokee was featured in the August 1999 issue of the Bulletin in an article titled Youthful Cherokee on the Road to a Rich Future. Describing Cherokee as a rustic version of Cypress Cove, the article referenced Danny's ongoing legal fights to keep Cherokee open, something he has had to deal with five times in the last seven years. Anytime an incident has come up, he has gone to Nashville to let his voice be heard. The article also hinted that Cherokee had reached a crossroads. While Danny was determined to keep the property's rustic, homespun atmosphere, it was becoming clear that Cherokee had the potential to become something much more significant than any of its founders had envisioned. About three years ago, we got all the facilities that would qualify us to call ourselves a resort, then we changed the name from Cherokee Sun Club to Cherokee Resort, Danny told the reporter. The club had recently begun work on a large residential area across from the resort's main entrance. This gated community would soon have 55 lots in addition to the 50 RV spaces and 49 permanent sites in the main resort. One day, I want Cherokee to be an actual village where people live here year-round, Danny explained in the interview. My future ultimate goal is that people won't have to get dressed to go into town to get anything. They can live here in harmony with nature. It's worth noting that Danny envisioned a naturist village, not a tourist destination. Having doubled its RV capacity and completed construction on a large pavilion, Cherokee announced it would host the 2003 AANR East Convention from July 16th to 20th and the AANR National Convention from August 11th to 18th. The club has built a new lake, sports bar, country store, and even a new pavilion by the hot tub, a convention preview in the June 2003 Bulletin reported. We're excited, exclaimed office manager Sally. We know we'll be prepared, and we believe we'll give the convention a flavor and a feel that it's never had before. Volleyball teams from as far away as Glen Eden in California competed on Cherokee's courts. Mike Skupin of the TV series Survivor was the dinner keynote speaker, and Danny even gave AANR executive director Eric Shuttoff a ceremonial mohawk. The conventions were hugely successful, and Cherokee was selected to host the 2004 AANR East Convention, scheduled for July 13th to 18th. Danny enjoyed interacting with the guests, keeping them fed with his cooking, and entertaining them with his Native American-themed activities, 
ranging from butterfly releases to blowgun demonstrations, but he was uncomfortable with the scope of these larger events and annoyed by all of the stuffy business and politics of the meetings. The heartland happenings were casual affairs, primarily managed by the attendees, as was the Midwest naturist gathering. But the AANR conventions were stressful, noisy, logistically challenging, labor-intensive, and expensive. Hours upon hours of meetings, motions, and grievances left many attendees fatigued and irritable, and tempers flared. At the AANR national meeting, the president had to issue a directive against sniping. Exhausted by the back-to-back -back conventions, Danny insisted he would focus on smaller events in the future. Christian naturist groups soon sought out Cherokee to host such an event. Danny constructed Cherokee's little church in the Wildwood in the spring of 2006, a log cabin structure with a century-old bell in its tower. An ordained minister with the Universal Life Church, Danny, and office manager Sally began to hold weekly non-denominational services. Later that summer, Britain's Channel 4 filmed a documentary at Cherokee called God's Nudists. In 2007, Cherokee was selected to host the Christian Nudist Convocation, featuring Christian naturist leaders. The event was the cover story of that week's edition of the Nashville scene, which unfortunately treated the subject with mockery and disdain. Why wouldn't you want to sit at the dinner table with your plate of Cherokee's famous barbecue and come face to face with a passerby's penis as you gnaw on a drumstick? The reporter joked. The scene article was picked up by various news of the weird columns throughout the country, much to the dismay of the convocation's hosts and participants. Better coverage came that summer from Knoxville's Metropulse. After a while, it doesn't even seem weird anymore that we're all just sitting around like pre-fig leaf atoms and eaves, nothing to hide, nothing to cover up, soaking up the sun and one another's company, columnist Leslie Wiley observed. Truth be told, I could kind of get used to this, once you lose the mindset that nakedness outside the bathtub and the bedroom is wrong, it's more natural than it seems. A Pivotal Year the summer of 2008 marked a turning point for Cherokee Lodge. By May of that year, Danny had decided to transfer management of the club to a new couple who had plans to transform Cherokee into a national destination. They would rename the property Cherokee Cumberland Resort, and there was talk of additional pools, more luxurious facilities, and even condos. A final AANR East convention was held July 13th to 20th and the Cherokee website promised a characteristically Tennessee experience. Now who said Elvis ain't gonna show up? He done been here last summer and is coming back to haunt us again for the convention. The Chuckwagon crew is gonna be puttin' together fixins for the best vittles in Tennessee to satisfy your drooling taste buds. We've been told and some have seen that there are some pretty dang good singers, strummers, and pickers among our nudist friends. Let's all get together for a whoppin' big songfest around the campfire. Soon after the convention, Danny became embroiled in a dispute with the new managers, whom he believed were abandoning the naturist values that had defined Cherokee for 16 years in an effort to operate the club as an adults-only venue. Unable to reconcile their differences, Danny closed Cherokee to visitors in October of that year. Nearly all of the RV owners packed up and left Cherokee for other area resorts, including Timberline, itself now an adults-only club. Danny felt betrayed, and in January 2009, a website announcement revealed Cherokee would open in the spring as a textile resort called Indian Lake Campground.
Cherokee Lodge and Resort will be reopening under the original ownership, Chief Danny and One Feather Donna, in the spring of 2009. Over the winter months, the grounds will be cleaned, renovations made, amenities added, and family friendliness and fellowship will once again be restored. Probably the biggest change will be that the theme of the resort will change to a family RV and camping resort and will no longer be operated as it has been in the past. The news disappointed many area naturists. A state that once boasted four nudist and naturist parks now had just one. But the country was still reeling from the recession, and Indian Lake never took off. By October 2009, Cherokee's textile experiment had ended. In November, the Cherokee website reappeared with an exciting announcement, Danny and Donna want everyone to know that they are back and it is business as usual. Call now to reserve your seasonal site for 2010 and to get your membership. This is what I wanted it to be. When Cherokee reopened in March of 2010, the atmosphere was reminiscent of the earliest days of the old Sun Lodge. Danny and four generations of his family were working hard on repairs that season, but the resort was hauntingly empty for the first couple of months. Concerns that the club might not recover from its second closure were somewhat alleviated on Memorial Day weekend, which attracted around 200 visitors, including some of Cherokee's longtime supporters and many first-time naturists. During the spring of 2011, a new website for the resort was launched, and Cherokee established a presence on social media. Giving guests the ability to see the rustic beauty of the property had a significant impact, and Cherokee began to draw many more young and first-time visitors. Summer weekends frequently attracted a few hundred guests. But many of those visitors would only stay for the afternoon. Most of the overnight guests were tent campers who set up in the surrounding forest, leaving the RV sites and lodge rooms almost empty and the facilities underutilized. Cherokee's 20th anniversary was celebrated in 2012, and articles acknowledging the milestone appeared in the April 2000 Bulletin. Cherokee Lodge and Resort will celebrate its 20th anniversary season this spring, a testament to the resilience and economic viability of a rural nudist club. Cherokee's endurance is rooted in a willingness to continuously invigorate its membership by welcoming new visitors and enhanced by a commitment to traditional naturist values. Just as importantly, Cherokee embraces its rustic heritage, deep southern roots, and serene mountain surroundings and blends these elements into a one-of-a-kind clothing-optional destination. Danny always wrestled with Cherokee's rapid growth. He was determined to move away from the insular and cultish atmosphere of the old nudist camps and create an entirely new alternative, and the club's tremendous early support exhilarated him. But he soon discovered that a sprawling resort buzzing with golf carts, packed with RVs, and with convention-goers was antithetical to his original vision of a peaceful wooded sanctuary for skinny-dippers and nature enthusiasts. In many ways, those final three seasons, with naturists hunting the woods for morels and wild ginseng and gathering around a bonfire in front of the lodge, inadvertently achieved precisely what the Cherokee founders had hoped for when they first gathered to discuss the idea of a new park two decades earlier, a quiet little naturist village. Times were changing. A growing number of nudists were looking for a party scene, and many resorts in the region were happy to cater to their needs. Countless nudist resorts in the southeast had transitioned into swinger resorts and enjoyed tremendous success. Under different leadership, this might have been Cherokee's fate. 
Danny had long voiced his belief that the naturist movement was being threatened by the growing popularity of these adults-only resorts, which he dubbed fuck farms. He was adamant that he'd rather see the 150 RV sites and home lots sit empty than fill them with the party crowd and the swingers. He'd rather see Cherokee go out of business than sacrifice principle for profit. And that's what happened. Cherokee was a little rural camp that almost grew into a big national resort, but it ultimately chose to stay true to its humble roots rather than live on in name only. Its loss was devastating for naturists in Tennessee, but its story is hardly tragic. As Danny said to me that final summer, watching newcomers and old friends enjoy the serenity of his mountain getaway, this is what I wanted it to be. Epilogue In October 2003, the Bulletin reported that the Timberline Lodge owners had decided to move on. After a decade and a half, the owners of Tennessee's oldest nudist park, Timberline Lodge Resort, are retiring. In the late 1980s, it was a rustic campground that operated as a co-op. Today the park boasts some of the finest accommodations available in the nude recreation industry. Timberline sat empty from 2003 to 2008, maintained by a solitary caretaker until 2009, when it reopened as a successful adults-only resort. The two-story lodge was destroyed in a fire in 2020, but the resort continues to thrive as an adult venue. The years between 2010 to 2014 represented a bittersweet era for Cherokee Lodge, as it was becoming clear that this wasn't a new beginning but the final days of the Cherokee community. Facing health issues and disappointing revenues, Danny quietly put the property on the market, and the resort sold in early 2014. The property now operates as a textile campground. Cherokee Lodge might still be in business today had Danny made different choices in 2008. But it almost certainly would have been a drastically different resort than the Cherokee founders had envisioned. Of Tennessee's three lodges, Rock Haven is the sole survivor. Only time will tell how it will hold up against the forces that have shuttered so many of the region's beloved clubs. Nashville's explosive growth has driven a construction boom in surrounding towns and cities, and more and more farms and forests, including those in Murfreesboro, are being wiped away for sprawling subdivisions and commercial developments. Rock Haven's survival may ultimately depend on its ability to resist these forces of change. In the October 1993 Bulletin, Cherokee Lodge's office manager Sally reflected on the end of the club's first season. The good old summertime is almost over. She wrote. Today, her words seem hauntingly prophetic when looking at the state of nudism and naturism in Tennessee and the Southeast. Danny once said that he thought almost every nudist park in the country would eventually sell to swingers or sell to textiles, and the few that didn't would have to try and hang on as best as they could. His prediction has been realized in the Southeast, outside of Florida, where a thriving social movement built by many brave nudists in a difficult cultural and political environment over 80 years has nearly vanished. What took so long to build has so quickly fallen away. Most southern states have no more than one nudist or naturist park. Some states have none. But textile and swinger campgrounds and resorts are thriving in the region. Most naturist spaces will be faced with a similar set of challenges. Aging owners, societal changes, and economic uncertainties will invariably force difficult decisions to be made. We may comfort ourselves with headlines that exclaim how Florida nudism is a $4 billion a year industry. 
we may celebrate when a mainstream publication gives us positive coverage. But a nudist park will almost always be more profitable as a swinger or textile club, and the land will always be more valuable as a commercial development. That reality, and the threat it poses, should not be ignored. An ambitious politician with presidential aspirations or a journalist looking to make headlines may not hesitate to use nudists as cannon fodder. We should harbor no illusions when confronting the extraordinarily difficult future our movement faces. The emergence, growth, and rapid disappearance of the nudist movement in Tennessee and much of the Southeast should serve as a cautionary tale. It can happen, and it can happen quickly. We should appreciate that our movement is more than a set of businesses, it is a set of ideas and ideals. It was built by people who dug foundations and water lines and lakes with shovels, who built cabins and lodges with hammers and nails, using wood carried in their bare hands from trees cut using two-person saws, who risked arrest and loss of their jobs to pursue their particular way of life. In many instances, we've failed to keep what those early nudists built because we've been unable to match their enthusiasm and passion and allowed their labor of love to become what we now call the nude recreation industry. By embracing the illusion that nudism is an industry and that we are merely consumers in that industry, we relieve ourselves of sharing responsibility for its sustainability. When a state lacks nudist or naturist spaces, we go on social media and, speaking as dissatisfied consumers, we demand that AANR open a resort or TNSF open a beach. When a resort announces it is closing or for sale, we propose that someone should buy it and keep it as a nudist venue. As we've learned in Tennessee, the greatest threat to nudism and naturism isn't the politician or the sheriff or the outraged citizen, it's our own inaction. In the 1930s, a handful of Tennesseans came together and networked and connected with others and started a small group. Many more groups followed. In the 1960s, another group of Tennesseans rolled up their sleeves and began work on a pair of campgrounds. In the 1990s, a similar group of Tennesseans went out into the woods and created the largest naturist resort in the country. Every group, campground, resort, and community in North America emerged in a similar manner. To save what we have left and to rebuild what we have lost, we must come to see ourselves not as consumers of an imaginary industry but as activists, organizers, builders, and founders of an ever-evolving, ever-expanding social movement. It's been done before. We hope you're enjoying Planet Nude. If so, please consider a paid subscription. Your membership comes with exclusive content and supports our work. Subscribe at www.planetnude.co Hey there, it's me, Ryan, your artificial host of Planet Nude Podcast. I just wanted to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, check out our sister podcast Naked Age. Naked Age is a history series which explores remarkable individuals who go to extraordinary lengths to live a nude life. It's a fascinating series that's not to miss. Check it out at www.nakedage.co. Thanks for listening.